Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, national security experts say increasing threats to politicians are reflective of a polarized society. I do worry about my safety, and I worry about the safety of my family. I worry, I have children. I worry about the safety of my constituency and my parliamentary staff. Uh, you know, we, we are living in a, at a time where I've actually told staff members not to come to work because I'm worried about their safety. The opposition speaks out against continuing the hybrid model of Parliament. These NDP Liberals are going to force the continuation of hybrid, hybrid Parliament for another year. Mm-hmm. Now the Prime Minister and his Liberal Ministers can travel around the world and the NDP can go on junkets, but they don't want to show up here to work. They want to collect a full-time paycheck while doing part-time work. And Pierre Poilievre encourages Canadians to keep protesting what he calls government attacks on freedom. There must be some kind of constituency within the Conservative Party that uh, responds positively to this type of messaging or Polyev wouldn't be doing it. It's Wednesday, June 22nd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. So let's start with the security uh, of parliamentarians. Uh, There are a lot of concerns that have been raised in the last few days uh, about threats and about behavior that happened during the convoy, the protests in downtown Ottawa in February. And there are experts saying this is an example of uh, or evidence of a polarized society. Um, Are we going to be dealing with with more of this going forward? And is there anything we can do to turn the temperature down a notch or two? Well, uh, you know, I think yes to both of those questions. The uh, It seems to me obvious that the level of threat and intimidation of elected officials uh, at every level is increasing day to day. And certainly the, uh, the advocates of these so-called freedom convoys and, and that uh, ilk are encouraging that kind of response. They're saying that, uh, you know, their interpretation of the law supersedes anything that's that's in the written law, so to speak, and that you should be allowed to harass politicians who don't do what you think is in the best interest of the country. Um, I'm not surprised to hear uh, the, the parliamentary sergeant-at-arms talking about the uh, threats and intimidation of staffers and politicians during the convoy protests last February, and I do think that there's a ratcheting up of this type of rhetoric. I mean, it's way worse in the U.S., but as with so many other things, what's happening down there is spilling over into into Canada, and, uh, you know, we see it all over social media, and uh, yeah, it's a legitimate problem, and uh, it's a serious problem because it's going to be harder and harder to get people to stand for public office or to work in the public service if this is allowed to prosper. So I think, uh, you know, police authorities and others are going to have to crack down on these issues uh, within the limits of, of free speech uh, provisions that are that are there in the Constitution. And while we're on that subject uh, related to that, Pierre Poilievre, the conservative MP and, and perceived frontrunner in the leadership race, is, is saying that he supports all Canadians who peacefully stand up for their rights. Uh, and, and this comes at a time when we're expecting, uh, perhaps as early as next weekend, uh, more protests in Ottawa. There, there are protests planned for Canada Day. Uh, they're obviously going to be handled differently this time around, but uh, but 
many people are seeing this as uh, as evidence that he's uh, signaling to the people behind these protests that he's on their side. What do you make of that? Well, there must be some kind of constituency within the Conservative Party that uh, responds positively to this type of messaging, or Polyev wouldn't be doing it. Um, I don't think uh, Polyev is an ideologue in any direction. I think he's an opportunist, and, and this is a great opportunity to uh, massage that part of the base. I mean, the danger is that more mainstream conservatives um, are just standing by, kind of silently watching it all happen, and uh, this is uh, unacceptable. Um, they're allowing their own party to be taken over by a noisy minority. And uh, I think they'll come to regret that. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that Polyev will be the leader. Uh, and perhaps once gaining the leadership, he would see um, that there's little to be to be gained for the party in, in terms of just developing that really extreme, noisy and violent base. But... Uh, you know, and look, you can't go wrong saying I support the right of all Canadians to peacefully do this, do that. <clears throat> if it was all peaceful, we wouldn't have had these problems in February. And uh, from what I can see, they're certainly talking about coming to Ottawa and Canada today and staying for the summer. So uh, obviously, you know, this is going to be another test of wills. And, um, you know, I, it's uh, it would be best for everyone if Polyev and the other uh, Tory or Conservative leader uh, leadership candidates uh, explicitly state where they stand on these things so everyone can, can understand it. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about the head of the RCMP denying a claim uh, by a fellow member of the RCMP that she tried to direct the information that investigators were releasing when they were looking into the mass shooting that happened in Nova Scotia in 2020. Uh, this allegation was was in some notes from a superintendent uh, in the Nova Scotia RCMP about Brenda Lucky. Um, so uh, you're, I know you've been following this closely. You're in Nova Scotia. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, this is yet another black mark, I think, on the RCMP overall, Mark. You know, they, they bumbled and fumbled uh, the actual crime itself. Uh, there's a lot of evidence now that's been amassed at the, um, at the inquiry, at the public inquiry that's been going on now for, for many weeks, and that has uncovered a lot of information about how the RCMP mishandled the crime itself and the aftermath, including taking care of the families and informing the public about uh, the shooter, where he got his guns, and, and the rest. Now, uh, what emerged yesterday was yet another example of internal conflict within the RCMP uh, over how much information and specific information should be released to the public. And one uh, senior RCMP official accused uh, his commissioner, Brenda Lucky, um, of of uh, wanting to curry favor with the Liberal government by by wanting to release information about the firearms that uh, the mass shooter Gabriel Wortman had had used. <clears throat> now, um, you know, uh, this looks to me uh, like it was the commissioner trying to curry favor with the government. Uh, but in the way of politics, it's gotten all twisted around. Uh, 
you know, primarily by conservative MPs, saying that this was the Liberals trying to manipulate the Mounties. I think it's quite the opposite of that. And and if you read carefully uh, what the uh, what the Mounties are saying, that is more likely the case. Um, but you know, gun control is a highly politicized issue in Canada. And uh, a crime like this, a really shocking signal crime uh, like this one, is bound to raise uh, all the arguments around public safety, uh, including uh, around gun control. Uh, But in my mind, this inquiry has brought up yet another disturbing, um, you know, set of facts about how the RCMP has uh, utterly botched this case right from day one. Hmm. All right, finally, Dan, uh, we're, we're wrapping up this session of Parliament this week, and uh, the, the Liberals are talking about extending the, the hybrid format that's been used throughout the pandemic. Uh, some opposition members are saying they don't agree with that. It should return to in-person. It's kind of an in- interesting issue because I understand why some people feel there, there could be less accountability if it's... Uh, if it's basically on Zoom and not in person. But there are others saying that maybe this is a model, regardless of the pandemic, that would be appealing going forward, that would allow for uh, people with with families and and other pressures uh, to run for parliament without having to to travel to Ottawa every single week of the parliamentary season, uh, that it would reduce travel and, and, and other practical aspects like that. So there's a lot to this story, and I think it's an interesting one about what's the best way for Parliament to function going forward. Yeah, I think it is a sign of the times, as as you're suggesting, Mark, that uh, a lot of corporations and uh, other organizations are finding it uh, cheaper, more convenient, uh, and safer for people to attend virtually or have an element of virtual meeting uh, I don't see any reason in this day and age why you can't have a combination of in-person and hybrid uh, type parliamentary sessions now uh, you know if you want to grill a witness at a parliamentary committee uh, it's going to be a I think a bit harder to do over zoom than it is over or, or in person um, but you know there is a theater of politics uh, that is exemplified by the House of Commons. And um, I think a lot of MPs would miss that theater, the live performance aspect, if you will. Um, and, of course, Zoom also, or, or similar type of electronic uh, solutions, have all kinds of other problems, too, just people going off mute or you know other embarrassing things that have happened. And so there are limitations there, but I, I do think that there is some merit in discussing this. And let's have it out there and, and have a good discussion about it and let Parliament decide for itself, um, you know, how it wants to proceed. Uh, you know, the Conservatives seem to be the most upset about the, the lack of in-person meetings. Well, is it their commitment then that every session of every sitting, every day of Parliament from now until, you know, the end of history will be done fully in person? You know, I don't know. So the world has changed. COVID has changed it. And um, I think this is another sign of the times. Yeah. All right. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today and and throughout the year as we've been covering the events uh, in Ottawa and beyond. Uh, Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay, Mark. Enjoy the summer. That's longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. 
I know that things are challenging for a lot of Canadians, Canadian families right now. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Observer, Max Fawcett argues the election results in France should serve as a warning to Canada's liberals. Fawcett writes, France's most recent election might offer a sneak preview of what our next federal contest could look like. While far-right populist Marine Le Pen didn't take the presidency, her party soared from just eight seats in 2017 to 89. That was largely a product of growing dissatisfaction with economic conditions in France, and it offers a warning to Canada's Liberals that they would be wise to heed. The economy is driving and defining our politics. That's bad news for Justin Trudeau's Liberals, since it's the area where they're most obviously vulnerable. In the Hamilton Spectator, Jason Myers and Rich Emmerich argue Canada is not just facing a worker shortage, but an unprecedented skills shortage. They write, Through climate change alone, 3.1 million Canadian jobs are expected to begin requiring new skills over the next decade. Some workers in traditional resource sectors may see this as a threat, but there will still be great jobs. The challenge is to pass along new skills without disrupting the economy. Canadian universities and colleges and government funders are still largely geared toward the old economy. Their understanding of where the jobs will be and the skills development requirements of employers are stuck in the past. If Canada is going to succeed in the fourth industrial revolution, we don't have any time to spare. In the Montreal Gazette, Christina Kasparian argues bilingualism is a gift, not a threat. Kasparian writes, I've always argued everyone should be functionally bilingual in Quebec. I want French to thrive, but I would also love to speak English to my surgeon about complex scenarios without fearing that clinical notes will be snatched and fines given. I would love to speak English to my husband on a stroll without garnering hostile glances. What if, instead of punishing people for speaking English, there were more incentives for using French? What if we promoted and protected French from a place of opportunity rather than suppression? Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will arrive in Rwanda. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will introduce the President of Ukraine at an address to university students in Toronto. She will also virtually attend question period before meeting with the Mayor of Toronto. Employment Minister Carla Qualtro and Minister of Families Karina Gould will announce funding in Ottawa to make early learning and child care centres across Canada more accessible. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will attend the NDP caucus meeting and question period. He will also hold a news conference in Ottawa. And Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette will also speak with the media in Ottawa. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, June 22nd. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.